So, thank you so much for everyone who, who joined us tonight. Um, we're, uh, we're very happy to see, to see you all, and we're also very grateful for the LSE Middle East Center uh, who are hosting this event together with the Institute of Global Affairs. Um, I'm Bilal Malaab. I am a postdoctoral researcher here at the LSE at the Institute of Global Affairs. And uh, I'll be chairing this event, uh, and we're very lucky to have fantastic speakers tonight who I'll introduce in a minute. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping while people are still flowing into the room. Um, we've established this seminar series, obviously, in reaction to the very rapidly changing uh, environment in Lebanon. Uh, massive movements have, have sparked on October 17. And what we've heard from many um, both at LSE and outside LSE from the Lebanese diaspora is that we, we're all very hungry for uh, factual discussions, intellectual discussions, to put everything in context. And, um, um, yeah, and to learn about what are the ways forward, how we got here, and what, what can we learn from it, how can we uh, frame our discussion. We're also very grateful for the LSE and for, for, uh, for our colleagues here who have um, very generously gave, gave us the space for intellectual thought and to, uh, to to, for very stimulating discussions, hopefully. In particular, I'd like to thank the Middle East Center, uh, Sandra uh, Sfer and Nadine uh, Al-Manasfi. I'd also like to thank colleagues at the Institute of Global Affairs, uh, where I work, and two, co two colleagues and friends who have also helped uh, promote and uh, this event and also very actively spoke to the speakers, uh, Maya Hadraj and uh, Diana Abbas. Um, just in terms of the running order of the proceedings, we'll be starting with, uh, with Jamil Ma'awad, who I'll introduce in a minute, and then we'll, we'll move to Hisham Safiyuddin and, uh, and Sophie Shamas. <coughs> Shamas? Shamas, sorry. <laughs> I'd like to ask the, the audience to kindly uh, silence their phones because this event is uh, recorded and live streamed. And um, I've been told to keep the speakers on time, so we'll hopefully have 10 minutes each with, with some leeway by, by, the, by, the Middle East, by the Middle East uh, bosses. Um, just, into, uh, just about our panel for tonight, we have Jamil Ma'awad who is a lecturer in political studies and public administration at the American University of Beirut. He's uh, in London for, for several um, uh, events this week, and he very kindly agreed to join us. This, uh, his research interest is in the state-society relations and spanning uh, comparative politics and political economy. Jamil works on, uh, on, a, on a book uh, that, is, uh, that presents a critique to the concept of weak state, and I'm sure we'll hear more about, the, uh, about this in a minute. Um, Hisham Safiyuddin is a lecturer in history of the modern Middle East at King's College London. He is the author of Banking on the State, the Financial Foundations of Lebanon. He holds a PhD from, in Middle East Studies from the uh, University of Toronto, and he's written widely on the banker's power and how it, how it can be a major impediment to fixing the Lebanese uh, system. Sophie Shamas is a senior teaching fellow at the Center of Gender Studies at SOAS. She holds a PhD from the University of Oxford and works on the study of social movements, counterculture, 
and political theory and uh, a discourse rooted in and focused on the Middle East. I'm sure you'll all agree that this is a fantastic panel and I for one really look forward to hear uh, more from, from all of you. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to uh, our first speaker, Jamila Mawad. Thanks, Bilal. Thanks, everyone, uh, for coming here tonight. So uh, basically what I'm trying to present tonight is a bit of my uh, understanding of what's going on now in Lebanon based on my research, but also my direct participation uh, during you know, the past uh, um, uh, 14, uh, 14 or 15 days uh, since the protest erupted in Lebanon. So what happened since then? You all know perhaps that uh, what triggered these protests is a decision by the government to uh, tax uh, WhatsApp services in Lebanon. So irrespective of whether we call this a WhatsApp revolution or not, um, uh, the fact that the government decided to tax a free service is very illustrative of how politics work in post-war Lebanon. Uh, basically, the ruling class is selling the Lebanese what belongs to the Lebanese. We all know that WhatsApp is a free service. So they're selling them something that belongs to them, while at the same time enriching itself, the ruling class, and popularizing normal citizens. So this is how politics work in a nutshell in Lebanon, at least since the end of the Civil War. So i just give you some figures. You should all know that in Lebanon we have a very high poverty rate. 1.5 million of the Lebanese, they're under the poverty line, meaning they live with less than $4 a day. So we have 1,000,000.5 living under the poverty line. And in return, we have extreme, cap uh, ex extreme uh, capital concentration in the very few. And this very few is basically and partially the ruling class. 1 to 10% of the population receives 25 and 50% of the national income. So. What's happening now, we can see that this is a revolution, an uprising, I prefer to call it uprising, against, uh, uh, against uh, you know, uh, capital accumulation, against inequality. These are social protests par excellence, where people are presenting both their personal grievances, expressing their personal grievances, but also their collective grievances. So what led to this moment? What led uh, to the fact that Lebanese took over the streets in order to protest uh, the system. And why now? Why not before? Of course, there are many reasons, but most importantly, we should analyze you know, these protests against the backdrop of a very dire economic uh, situation. In fact, at least during the last two, three, four years, uh, uh, everyone was suffering uh, in Lebanon to make ends uh, meet. Uh, both the rich and the poor, all social classes combined, they were facing serious economic uh, uh, problems and challenges. So how do, how do we analyze what's going on uh, now in Lebanon? There is definitely a crisis. Of course, there is an uprising, but there is definitely a crisis before the uprising erupted. So I see this crisis as the crisis of the state, the crisis of the system, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the crisis of the society. So what do I mean by the crisis of the state? According to uh, uh, a very prominent Lebanese economist, Kamal Hamdan, the state in post-war Lebanon, the public state, uh, invested very little in the infrastructure. 
I'll give you a number, only 8%, only 8% of the public capital investment, which is, you know, the public budget, went to infrastructure and not, and these public, this 8% this did not translate into services because we have to account to and take into account corruption, nepotism, uh, and so on and so forth. So 8%, that's very, very, very little. Alternatively, the so, so the state provides little services to the society, the public state. Alternatively, the, the ruling elite managed to capture the state institution and put in place what we call the parallel state. So for every public utility, electricity for instance, there is a public service. And usually this public service is in a way or another connected to the interest of the ruling class in Lebanon. So why is it the crisis of the state? Of course, because the state became irrelevant to the functioning of the everyday life of the Lebanese. So it's no longer a source of justice for the Lebanese, but at the same time, the state is captured by the ruling class. But also, why is it a crisis of the ruling class? Of course, due to the regional challenges that you know, the Middle East is witnessing, the war in Syria, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, MBS, and all you know, the, the, the changes that are occurring in Saudi Arabia now, uh, the system could no longer rely on you know, the money that comes from <laughs> outside to feed the clientelist network. And these clientelist network, they were guaranteeing kind of support for the, uh, this ruling class. So with the exhaustion of resources, uh, people, of course, uh, they were deprived from a main, you know, uh, uh, if you want, you know, uh, from main services. That's why they took over the street. But not only, you know, uh, this dimension, there is another dimension. In the last two or three years specifically, uh, we witnessed intra-elite struggle in Lebanon, unprecedented intra-elite struggle in Lebanon. Uh, the, the ruling class got completely disconnected from the society. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were consumed by uh, their intra-elite struggle, uh, um, and, and, and they, they, they were not uh, pushing forward for any serious reform and much-needed uh, reforms. So uh, even some of them have um, adopted a very chauvinist and racist stance, not only when it comes to the refugees, whether Syrians or Palestinians, but also when it comes to the Lebanese. So here we have complete mistrust and complete disconnection between the society and the ruling class. But also why is it a crisis of the society? Because this neoliberal system that was put in place in post-war Lebanon creates consumerist subjects. So with the absence of public services in Lebanon, ordinary Lebanese people, they started to rely on and consume services, whether, um, uh, uh, whether um, you know, everything was outsourced, basically. For those of you who know the Lebanese society well, everything is outsourced, you know, from the help at home uh, to, you know, valet parking services. So in order to go out at night, you need to give your car no matter how fancy your car is to someone that you don't know, but you give him your car and you entrust him your car and then he goes, he comes back two hours later with your car, you pay him. So everything became outsourced and, 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 and we have to acknowledge that this is a society that has reached its, its consumerist limits. So people are under a lot of debts, but also uh, they could no longer afford paying loans, uh, we all know, you know, uh, the problems of rent, housing, etc., etc. So this is the third reason why this is a crisis of, you know, uh, w w about the nature of the crisis and when, why people went and took uh, over the street. So what's happening in Lebanon is an uprising against the economic situation, corruption, nepotism, and accumulation of wealth. 
how was this, uh, these protests perceived, were perceived? So basically, the beauty of this kind of you know, events is that everyone finds a way to validate his own perspective. So we have researchers, intellectuals, social scientists working on different topics related to Lebanon, and they see in this revolution a way to validate their own point of view, which is legitimate, of course. So those who work on claiming back the public space, they, see, they say, oh, finally, we've claimed the public space. Those who are working on class struggle, they say, oh, finally, this is the class struggle. Those who are working on anti-sectarian or sectarian identity, they see in this movement a movement against uh, uh, sectarianism. I believe it's a bit too early to jump into conclusions and say this is a class struggle. Why? I'll just give the example of the class struggle. Because so far, even the bourgeoisie in Lebanon and in Beirut specifically is protesting on the street. It's not necessarily a class consciousness. Maybe they're protesting because they cannot exploit people anymore because they don't have enough money to pay for these services and employ someone for $300 only as a driver or so. So we have to be very careful and not jump necessarily into conclusions. Uh, um, and most importantly, we should not fall into the trap of turning blind eye on the real problems and challenges that are facing now this movement, which is a, a movement for social justice and against you know, capital uh, accumulation and uh, corruption. So what's the, of course, the slogan, we all know the slogan, you know, taking the Arab world by storm. We want to topple down the regime, Ashab, you read Nizam. So what does this mean in Lebanon, basically? What system are we talking about? Is it the sectarian system? If so, what part of the sectarian system? What kind of system are we talking about? My understanding of the system in Lebanon, it's a system that was consolidated in post-war Lebanon and basically relies on three complementary uh, uh, pillars. So first, it's a system that has managed to control, uh, to have a hegemony over the discourse and a discursive hegemony over imaginaries. So it's a system that convinced people basically, and here I'm talking about the ruling class and uh, uh, the crony capitalist, they convinced people that the state does not exist. And in order for you to have services, you need to rely on ours, uh, be it you know sectarian uh, services, welfare, etc., etc. So they managed to uh, uh, control and to hold you know, people's imagination. And this is very important. The, uh, the, the, the Zaim or the sectarian leader can know, uh, uh, is the one who's presenting himself as the guarantor of the rights of the community, but also he's the one who would bring, you know, this community, etc., etc., to life. Yeah. Ah, one minute only? Okay. <laughs> uh, so the, the second pillar is violence. This is a system that relies on violence and not only arms, but everyday violence, strong man convoys on the street, etc., etc., And the third pillar is capital control at, and ex extraction. So what did we, what did, uh, we manage so far? Uh, I believe what this uh, uprising has managed to do so far is to shake the first pillar, which is the imaginaries. Now some Lebanese, they can imagine themselves outside the scope and realm of the control of the Zaama or the traditional uh, leaders. Um, uh, just to end with this one, because I don't have time, maybe with, with you know, Q's and A's, I can develop this. Uh, the crux of the problem n lies in the slogan of Kilkun, yani Kilkun, or all of them means all of them. This is the solution, because for once, we managed to consolidate the power in one group. Before, it was diffused. We don't know who to involve, who not to involve, etc. 
So this is the solution, people against power, and power is consolidated. The problem is because this slogan, all of them means all of them, conceals those who are really responsible uh, for corruption because we, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, it doesn't really name and shame in different regions. So someone who's supporting Hariri can go to Saida or to Tripoli and say, Kilkun, yani Kilkun. So this is something that is a main challenge <coughs> to end up with. Uh, uh, the, ro the, the, way is, the road is way too long. Uh, uh, this is a very challenging process. Um, but uh, uh, just, you know, one achievement so far is that any government that will come uh, uh, to Lebanon now uh, should and will take eventually into account the voice of the people, and this is already a big a achievement for the Lebanese. Thank you, Jamie. So with that, we turn uh, to the political economy of banking, and I think there's lots of common threads there with what Jamil has just told So thank you for the organizers. Thank you for having me. I was in Lebanon for a week uh, last week, and I've been working on the political economy. Sorry? Yes, I was in Beirut and in the south. Um, and I also have worked in uh, political economy of Lebanon for a while. So I also understand there's lots of questions about what's happening right now. And I'd be happy to uh, potentially comment on those in terms of the formation of the new government, the resignation of Hariri, what the people are demanding in the street, and the composition of this movement that has taken place in the last two weeks. But uh, one of the things about being here, actually, is we do have the privilege and potential luxury of actually uh, thinking of ways in which we can support this movement at the same time critically think about it at a distance. Uh, also, um, I believe in um, um, comprehensive forms of education. We demonstrate. We also sit and discuss uh, what we carry in our demonstrations can be different sometimes how we, how we d discuss as in those environments. So I hope this is an opportunity for all of us to express ourselves critically. So this is part of an op-ed op that I'm writing, so I will read a little bit <coughs> of it and then maybe make some remarks in terms of the second half that I haven't written yet. Um, the title is The Corruption of Debt because corruption is a word that you hear all the time, whether on social media, whether people chanting in the streets, but also in terms of how we think of uh, um, uh, societies like Lebanon, in many instances in a very Orientalist manner. So let me say first that there is no shortage of corruption in Lebanon. Uh, everybody knows that. According to Transparency International, people in Lebanon actually are the most likely in the MENA region to describe their politicians and state institutions as highly corrupt. From the smallest bureaucratic transaction to the largest government contract, billions of dollars are drained from people's pockets through bribery and the public purse through embezzlement. But the focus on the liberal forms of corruption, which I'm going to criticize here, as defined by these international organizations, has reduced the crisis to a problem of bad governance or good governance, which many of us who work here on the region have to deal with. Uh, there's always a ready accusation of endemic or rampant corruption, and this is something we hear by global consultancy groups. This is something we hear by Western political leaders, no less than somebody like Donald Trump. Uh, we also hear this being put to officials in the region by Western mainstream media. These accusations are usually coupled with a rehearsed formula to solve the crisis. So when we think of solving the crisis, we hear about we need more transparency, we need an end to clientelism, which we all also know about, and we need drastic fiscal reforms. 
Now, this diagnosis sits very well with the elites in the global north because they're eager to exonerate themselves and lay all the blame on their global south counterparts, which are equally corrupt. Um, it also drowns the debate with legal and financial jargon about the rule of law, fiscal mismanagement, and usually with little results to show for. For example, in Lebanon, we have a law against legal, uh, lawf uh, unlawful enrichment for now 20 years. Not a single person has been prosecuted under this law. Meanwhile, there are other major and invisible sources of corruption, like chronic debt, which I'm going to talk about, that are either discussed in passing or invoked to justify more of the same antidote, austerity measures of cutting major social services and subsidies that benefit the majority of the population and are intended to redirect government expenditures to service public debt and pay the rich lenders and make way for profitable foreign investment. So a lot of what we saw in terms of the, contra the economic contradiction, this uprising has many contradictions as also Jamil tried to tell us about how people see it, but the economic contradiction blew over Precisely at the moment when they were running out of, uh, um, uh, when the state and the ruling class was running out of resources and they were seeking help from abroad. So in the case of, of Lebanon, the corruption induced by debt has reached gigantic proportions. Debt is the primary source of lawful, not unlawful enrichment. Lebanon is among the top uh, four or five indebted nations in the world. Public debt in Lebanon today is close to 130% of GDP. There's also the question of personal loans and consumerism. Oh, I'll, I'll give you some statistics of how many tens of thousands of Lebanese families are now dependent on loans for housing and other basic social needs, not just on WhatsApp. So for us to understand the structure of debt and the role of banker power, local and international lenders in creating and sustaining this crisis is key if we want to understand how we can think of solvent. It also, in my opinion, helps assign blame where blame is due and find remedies that would hold those responsible accountable while minimizing the price paid by their victims, the people. Because any kind of solution we're going to put forward is likely to create hardships for people, even though if we think it's going to potentially solve it long term. I think we have to start, though, with the question of, in this case, debt. So there's the corruption of external debt and there's the corruption of internal debt. Now public debt, by the way, as a means of corrupting government administration and avoiding the taxation of the rich and draining the public purse and confiscating the wealth of other nations is a centuries old practice. This is not something that just happened overnight. We know uh, uh, the colonizing by lending whereby it was common in the 19th century for imperialist powers like Britain and the United States to invade countries like Egypt, or in the case of the US like the Panama, uh, to exact debt. Now, in today's world, we have something else. We have something a bit more complicated usually, which is the IMF and the austerity conditions that these countries have to subscribe to. And usually, these exorbitant debt payments would lead to reduced public investment. So you have to you redirect uh, much of your investment to paying the debt, to social turmoil, to de-development and increased vulnerability to foreign interference. The structure of Lebanon's external debt has followed a similar pattern for two decades. The Sadr conference, if you've heard of, was the last installment of refinancing or restructuring the debt. So there is a role for even, and I'm emphasizing this here because for us who are here, we have to think of how we can actually uh, pressure 
those that can are responsible, partly responsible, for the enormous public debt that the people of Lebanon are suffering under and that is partly causing the crisis. Now, the corruption of internal debt, the, the structure of the debt in Lebanon is such that almost over 50% of it is held by local banks. So it's actually, gradually, what happened really is with this source of debt drained, the ruling classes started seeking external debt. And what are the three major sources of external income from Lebanon? Tourism, remittances by Lebanese who live either in West Africa or the Gulf or North America. All of these sources are actually now in decline. Um, um, and this is why they've turned now to this new 11 billion package coming from foreign assistance. So um, there are also a series of financial restructuring and engineering that the central bank in Lebanon has initiated in the last few years, which, in, which led to, I'm not going to go into detail of financial engineering, the uh, basically enrichment in a matter of days in the tens of millions of dollars of those who own the banks by simple by simple formula of depositing dollars and granting them loans in in US so there is and this is becoming visible to people for the first time in this current uprising you have people chanting and i'm just reporting what the people are chanting that the central banker is a thief that actually we have had enough of taxation uh, sorry of public debt servicing that is costing millions of dollars at the expense of people now the second point i want to make is lebanon has become a debtor nation not just the state. Um, we have, according to press reports, close to, and I want to make sure I quote this right, um, close to 700,000, over 700,000 personal loans. The population of Lebanon today is around 4 to 5 million. Almost 128,000 families are indebted to the banks, $12 billion debt. <coughs> Some of them are consumers' debt, so people can't afford anymore with low wages to pay uh, for their consumption. Uh, some are credit, and some are housing. So the central bank at some point gives the banks several billion dollars for 1%, and they loan the people for their housing for 7 or 6%. The mediation of the banks creates this difference in profit. So... Um, <coughs> I can go in more detail if you want um, in the Q&A. Uh, my main point here is there are a lot of politics and geopolitics involved, but the economic question, in my opinion, is also the question that will protect any movement from becoming sectarianized. It is also at the crux, at the deep structural, organizational level of what Lebanon is. We're so used to simply fetishizing sectarianism and talking, yes, there's lots of sectarianism in this country, but there's also a question of class in this country. There are certain solutions being proposed by young people in the streets on how to deal with this problem. The latest, um, uh, um, the latest action taken, where uh, this is very minimal still in the movement, it's not big, by a number of student, uh, activists who stormed the Association of Banks in Lebanon and they demanded a decrease in interest. They wanted their housing loans to be in dollars, uh, in, in pounds, not in dollars, because if we have a, um, Sorry? Lebanese pounds. Yes, in Lebanese. Sorry, yeah, we are in England, I should say. No, yeah, not in pounds. Not, uh, certainly not with Brexit on the horizon. Um, so we can maybe talk more about those solutions, but if we don't talk about that and we just talk about the typical form of corruption that we're so used to, we're missing out on a white elephant in this crisis. Thank you. <coughs>
Thank you so much, Hisham. So uh, our final speaker is uh, Sophie uh, Shamas, and she will, I think she will draw so again on some of the threads that Jamil started on the uh, political imagination. Over to you. <laughs> um, hi, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm going to pick up on this idea of the political imagination and more kind of specifically political subjectivity and the kind of possibilities that might sort of arise from this um, revolution or uprising, depending on what you want to call it. Um, and I'll draw on my own research with activist movements in Lebanon. Um, so I carried out the fieldwork for my dissertation between the summer of 2016 and the summer of 2018. And I was interested in the shape that activism in Lebanon was taking in the aftermath of the so-called failure of the garbage protests of 2015. So their inability to birth a strong, sustainable, socio-political movement. And I was interested in the embrace of a pragmatic and technocratic approach to political activism in the aftermath of this political moment. So a form of activism grounded in making demands of the state rooted in the law and the constitution, a kind of consensus-based politics that avoided controversy and that was committed to logging small wins and reforms in the hope that they would accumulate into something more substantial. And I watched this reformist or pragmatic or technocratic politics not just fail, but I observed that it did something negative in the world, um, that it pulled the activists I worked with further away from their own <coughs> visions and just reified the form of state power they were invested in challenging. And so I thought a lot about when I was in the field um, about the political imagination, about the disappearance of the radical political imaginary within not just activist circles, but kind of throughout the entire country, and the consequences of that for politics and for change. And I thought a lot about what the late Mark Fisher called capitalist realism, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but that it is now impossible to imagine a coherent alternative to it. And I think what we're observing in Lebanon, not just Lebanon right now, but Chile and Iraq and other contexts, is the fra fracturing of this common sense, in, in my opinion. And I think the forms of mass civil disobedience that we're seeing in Lebanon can enable new processes of political subjectivation, of, a, of radical political imaginativeness, that don't require an appeal to self-interest or a guarantee of success in order to be sustainable. And I think what we're seeing contra the kind of dialogic activism that was quite characteristic of what I guess we can maybe now call the pre-revolutionary or pre-uprising period, um, is forms of political organizing that in, in another context might have been considered counterintuitive. So forms of undoing or not doing, um, you know, not accepting a resignation, not <laughs> accepting reforms, not accepting or celebrating small gains as uh, Hassan Nasrallah called on protesters to do. Rather, I think what we're seeing now, and for me, um, what is kind of so hopeful, is something akin to what Donna Haraway called staying with the trouble, so cultivating a politics of refusal, really. Um, and I think this collective politics of refusal, of holding uh, one's ground, of reveling in the euphoria of assembly, has the potential to aid in transforming the kind of anti-politics we're seeing into an alter politics, so into the basis for a new political community. And I think what we're seeing, at least in activist uh, spaces, is the breakdown of this binary um, that I, I felt had become all too common um, between the pragmatic and technocratic on the one hand, which was considered realistic, and the heterotopic, so the retreat into kind of liminal spaces where you can do pure politics that doesn't actually have an impact on the world. 
I think what we're seeing now, especially in the ways um, in which the population has overwhelmingly refused the ameliorative gestures of the state, is that we seem to be beginning to imagine an approach to politics beyond this binary that doesn't require appeasement on the one hand or complete withdrawal. And I think what's important to keep in mind is that the mass civil disobedience that we're seeing, this kind of collective disruptive politics, had precedence on a smaller scale in Lebanon, uh, precedence that we really should be paying attention to if we want to think about the, not just how to make sense of this uprising, but what comes after it. So just a few examples, in April 2018, hundreds of governmental hospital employees went on strike to protest the delayed implementation of the new salary scale. In June of that same year, hundreds marched through Beirut streets to mark International Domestic Workers Day, calling for the abolishment of the sponsorship system that denies migrant domestic workers fair and dignified work and living environments. In August, municipality workers in Tripoli held a sit-in at the entrance of the municipal building, keeping staff and citizens from being able to enter in order to protest unpaid salaries. And in September, residents of Saida burned tires and blocked off roads after they suffered three days without water, demanding the South Lebanon Water Authority address the issue. And when Tripoli held a by-election in April of 2019, a large number of eligible voters choice, chose to boycott, stating that they no longer believed politicians' empty promises. And only 13% uh, of eligible voters turned out to cast ballots during that election. So I think these examples of disruptive politics plucked from the 2018-2019 news cycle in Lebanon were also, it's important to keep in mind that they weren't rare occurrences in the country and that Lebanon has a history, in some ways a forgotten history, of boycotts and work stoppages and economic shutdowns. And I really recommend reading the work of Lara Bitar, who writes regularly in Open Democracy and has written about this idea of a politics of refusal in really compelling ways, I think. Um, so for me, the big question moving forward uh, is whether the mass politics of refusal and civil disobedience that we've been watching unfold for more than two weeks now, a refusal of the present and of authority, of the government's claims to legitimacy and deferrals of responsibility, I wonder if it can be harnessed and used to initiate a coming together of disparate dissenters to, to fashion really a common cause or a common vision. I think the big question is how to harness the potential of this collective articulation of refusal, how to organize noncompliance and fashion disparate no's into a practice and ethos of collective strategic refusal, aimed not only at collapsing an unjust system, but imagining and inching towards an alternative. And it, I think it's important to keep in mind, and this builds on what Jamil was saying about these kind of hegemonic uh, imaginaries, the Lebanese ruling class, uh, especially in the post-war period, has trafficked in political disorientation and fragmentation. Um, and I think perhaps what is needed uh, is the creation of what, you know, of, of spaces where um, political analyses um, and norms can be engaged with and contested, um, and through which a kind of radical political imagination can be cultivated. Um, uh, <laughs> a commitment to which I think can be productive of the comradeship and solidarity that is necessary for a social movement to persevere and grow. Um, Sami Hirmez, in his reflections on Lebanon's anti-sectarian movement of 2011, when we also heard the, cha the, the chants that Jamil mentioned, he wrote that what was pervasive in Lebanon was a unique situation in which we did action alone and reflection alone, but that the two were often not done together in tandem as part of the same master project. What was needed, he explained, was not so much to live or die for a cause, but rather to create a movement that could be sustained full time. 
And I think what's inspiring about what's unfolding on the ground right now is that many are conscious of the fact that these conversations were perhaps neglected in previous moments or movements. And what I'm seeing, at least through social media and through conversations with friends, is a concerted effort to create spaces where these conversations can unfold, where world-making can unfold, really. And I think these conversations being also disorganized and scattered and ad hoc, um, while it can seem counterintuitive, is likely to be more productive than an organized lecture by experts about what to do next and how to move forward. And you know, these are sort of also happening in tandem. And I, so I think there's a great potential in, in thinking about this or in the, these kinds of forms of collective study, really. So studying the situation at hand, how we got here, where we might want to go, in a way that's aimed at um, losing or discarding assumptions and uh, common sense and prejudices and everything else that limits the imagination and its reach for more and more egalitarian possibilities. And what I see as having the most potential is those spaces that are not aimed at designing and setting in concrete a political program from now in this particular moment, but seem committed to kind of thinking and cont contesting and arguing and chanting. So spaces for reaching towards you know, a kind of utopia, you could call it, rather than making something potentially counterproductive of, of the now. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is a desire to reclaim uh, what Wendy Brown calls a, a lost sense of futurity, of the future, which I which again, I think is really inspiring. Um, is that for me? Okay, I'm almost done. Um, yeah, I mean, another thing I think is, is worth pointing out is the way in which uh, Lebanon and post-Civil War Lebanon has often been talked about as being kind of stranded in the present and experiencing a temporal crisis. And this is a condition that goes beyond Lebanon. It's much more global. Um, so people like David Scott have said that in our sort of contemporary period, we're haunted by ghosts of post-socialist and post-colonial future past, futures past and that we experience time as out of joint and this idea that kind of this idea of time that fed a longing for re revolution wasn't as convincing. Um, and I think uh, what we're seeing in Lebanon and other contexts today is the breaking down of this relationship to the present and to the status quo as endless. So there's a kind of insistence on mobility, really, and on moving forward. And we're seeing, the in the Lebanese case, the breakdown of this idea that we're kind of doomed to live amongst the ruins of the Civil War. Um, and this idea that the people who live in Lebanon, the kind of the best that they can do is um, you know, live through this kind of precarious management of these immortal tensions um, and that any kind of prodding towards something bigger or more substantial will result in civil war. I think we're really seeing a rejection of this narrative and I think that that really has a lot of, um, of potential. Um, yeah, and I'll end there. Thank All you. Right. Thank you so much for the panelists. That was, re that was a really rich... Uh, Discourse. Um, before opening up for questions, I'd just like to really welcome the youngest uh, participant in this seminar. <laughs> I think we're not doing nearly enough for mothers to be part of these discussions, so this is really welcome. Thank you for coming. <laughs> so um, we'll open for, for Q&A. Um, I'd just like to encourage you to keep your questions brief so that we can take as many questions as possible. We have about 50 minutes left for this seminar. 50, yeah, five zero. Um, so, so we'd like to take maybe three questions at the time, and then we'll give the the panels the panel the space to respond, and then do a, a few other rounds, hopefully. So, just please keep them brief and uh, relevant. Thank you.
yeah, let's start there. Thank you. Um, do you hear me? Yeah, I guess it's better without. Yeah. Um, You've been chanting lately, have you? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first, thank you guys. Um, you gave us a very clear picture of what's going on in Lebanon right now. Uh, excuse my voice again, it's, it's almost gone. So um, my understanding, we need this, a list of actions. Um, we're here today not only to listen to what's going on in, currently in Lebanon, but we, so we can like, get actions um, to solve the problem. Uh, as Hisham said, uh, there, there is a debt crisis, and we need, we need to work on that, how we can structure our short-term and long-term debt. That's, that's vital for us to continue. Um, so that, that's my number one question. Uh, one question, please. <laughs> I, I, so that we can take yeah, more. Just very quick, a quick one, yeah. Very quick. So how would we, how would we um, do uh, to... As a country, uh, not to be a puppet uh, for international power. That's very important to, um, to mention. That's a question. Um, right, thank you. Let's, and let's eliminate sectarian, sectarianism in our yeah. politics, Lebanese uh, politics. Let's thank take you. another question. Um, can, can we get the lady on the side, or shall we do... Yeah, the, with the orange scarf. People like orange here. Can we meet, maybe squeeze a little bit so that people on the sides can... Have a seat. Thank you. Live stream. Um, just a quick question. I w I'm wondering. I didn't read. Um, yeah. Wait. Oh wait. <laughs> we'll add it to the seminar time. <laughs> Good. Can I go? So uh, I was wondering, thank, thank you very much uh, for this panel, and I'm, um, which role do refugees play in the protests? Because, like, because I, don't, like, I don't read anything about refugees uh, in, in protests, or if they also, now we're reading a lot about that it's going beyond sectarianism, and, um, and it's a Lebanese protest, yeah, but I, there are 1.4 million refugees, I think, Syrian in thank Lebanon, you. so do they protest? One more question? The gentleman in the back. Can you try to pick them on the same side? You <laughs> <laughs> can just pass it on. <laughs> no, we need the mic for, for the live streaming. We just need it for the live streaming. Okay. 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 Uh, hi there, everyone. Thank you for coming and talking today. Uh, my question is uh, quite specific, I suppose. Uh, Basically, it's about the debt, the local debt, the debt that is held locally uh, by the banks and the interest rates. Uh, interest rates have been very high for the last God knows how long. Uh, it's a bit of a two-parter. Why are these interest rates so high and what happens if you cut them down? Uh, who sets them in the first place? And what's the solution for the debt, basically? So, thank you. Thank you. So, three quick but very big questions for the panel. Who wants to take a stab at the first one? So the list of actions and how can we, what can we do to, for Lebanon not to be a puppet for international uh, 
well, regions. I think we can That's only, not in my words. We can all maybe speak to the question of what we can do in general, our own. Obviously, no one, in my opinion, definitely not me, can speak for what people can do. But uh, I think there are two forms of action or, or engagement. One is solidarity. So how can you be in solidarity with the people over there, whether it be it's through supporting them financially, emotionally, uh, politically? And one is what kind of actions you can take towards the, po the powers that may have an impact on what happens. So if you're in London, who are the, what kind of actions you can take in this uh, city to basically pressure certain groups to accede to some of what we think are the basic demands of the people. And this whole idea that people don't have demands, we don't know what they are, I think we do. I think if the government today uh, gets the electricity going in two months for 24 hours, I think all the Lebanese would agree this is a demand. So to, to say that there aren't any kind of demands, we have some common denominator demands. So that's the question of solidarity, debt. The first point is debt forgiveness. I mean, there are, there are measures you take in reform, times of reform, and there are measures you take in times of revolution. It depends on how much you can actually secure a demand. So debt forgiveness is one basic thing that happens all across history. So that's one step you can ask for. Or if you don't want to, to ask for debt forgiveness, you can ask for reduction in debt. So you call for a serious reduction of debt, or you can call for a reduction in interest rates. So I'll answer this question uh, straight ahead. <coughs> now. The problem is, if you have foreign debt, you uh, may undermine the stability of your currency if you default on debt. Debt has two aspects. One is economic, one is psychological and political. So if, if political parties who are so concerned all of a sudden about the well-being of the Lebanese people, they are so supporting these demonstrations, they can start by calling for a reduction in foreign debt and by creating mechanisms to assuage and, and support the lenders who may be concerned. So they can support this process by calling for debt forgiveness and um, reduction. Now, who sets the rates? It's usually the central bank if you are borrowing, if the government is borrowing. And much of this is public debt. So uh, you can reduce the interest rates and create, just like they created today, capital controls, if you know of that. means they control the flow of money in and out of the banks. There's always a concern that the economy will potentially collapse, or there's always a concern that you'll have a paucity of dollars in the economy. But if you actually, if the bankers, and I'm talking here about the bank, the, uh, those who have high deposits and the rich, I'm not talking about people who work in banks, the owners of the debt, if you put them in a corner, so to speak, and say, either you agree to this, because there are no ways around this, you have to get money, either you tax the people, or you borrow, or you print money. If you print money, you're going to create potentially inflation. Um, the what about stolen assets? Stolen assets, you can also get them back. I have, but there are also assets that exist today in Lebanon that you can actually uh, put them on hold until they pay the... But I think the debt forgiveness part is very important. So these are different ways. Uh, loans, also loans. You can reduce. Some people are calling for refusing to pay their loans in dollars the low housing loans. So you, f you refuse to pay. If I lend you money and I have, um, you're not giving me back the money, I can either use force or can I agree to refinance. So pressuring the banks to accept some loss today, because it's not a loss, they're making millions of dollars of profits. The government, the Hariri government, did impose a one-year tax in the, in the so-called uh, reform paper that they submitted to the people. So only after people's pressure they agreed to actually allow the banks to cough up around, I think, four, four billion. So there are ways to actually push the banks to pay, but you need lobby pressure. They always lobby the state. We have to lobby the state in the right. opposite direction. 
Great. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the role of refugees in the protests, and then we'll give to Jamil to answer the question on international interference. Um, I mean, I think to be to begin with, it's worth acknowledging the um, uh, protests that Palestinians living in Lebanon had engaged in for their their uh, labor rights right before this uprising happened. Um, and it is worth thinking about the kind of environment that that created and that the link between that and then what um, sort of emerges. But there, there is definitely surely a presence of refugees who live in Lebanon within these protests. Um, it's not an easy thing to measure because you also have to avoid um, the security forces when you are that um, vulnerable. So it's difficult to kind of determine um, how many sort of people are present. But I think maybe what's worth uh, talking about is the the kind of chanting that we've heard um, in solidarity with refugees, um, this kind of well, this desire to um, use the space of these protests to challenge racism and to challenge things like the, the sponsorship system that affects uh, migrant workers. And so we have seen a discourse, an attempt to kind of fold into this, uh, the space of this revolution, um, a kind of more inclusive approach to everybody who lives in the country, right? And a, a challenge to this idea that this, this is a protest for Lebanese people or for citizens, as opposed to everybody who lives in that country and is affected by the policies there. That's not to say that this is how everybody feels, but that there is an attempt by certain elements of the protesters to introduce this discourse, right? So. Yeah, I don't know what, uh, but basically, um, the, the space of the of these you know protest uprisings, um, um, at some point it becomes the utopia in action. Like all these groups that uh, Sophie was talking about, uh, uh, um, they they have certain imaginaries. They come to the uh, to the street. They start chanting in favor and in support of Syrian refugees. But to, let's be honest, this revolution was very accommodating to all Lebanese, to the different personal and collective grievances, uh, people who support the army, uh, LGBT community, different groups, but not to the refugees. So till now, uh, that's one of the reasons I don't call it a revolution, because it's not finding a place or a voice for these refugees, and not only refugees, Palestinians or Syrians, but migrant workers who suffer the most from the system. There are people speaking on behalf of these marginalized groups, but this revolution did not give voice yet to these people, and that's why I don't call it revolution. That's why it's an utopia in action uh, uh, at some point. The second um, uh, thing that some people even, this revolution have different ge uh, geographies in Beirut, in Tripoli, in the south. Let's face it, it's a minority that supports the question of refugees. Outside Beirut, and even in Beirut, in Tripoli, in the north, they don't mention these. On the contrary, some of them have been there. They even blame the refugees for the problems of, uh, you know, the economic problems that the Lebanese are facing. So sh that's why I'm saying we should be very careful in the way we approach and analyze, you know, these events. This is one. Two, uh, you know, Hisham is the expert on this, but we've heard that, you know, we're talking about re equal redistribution of losses. So some people who made a lot of money, they have to pay them back. I'll give you an example. I have $1 million in the 90s. They give me interest up to 10. <coughs> now they're 10 million. So eventually some people are saying they should pay back at least three or four. These are not lost. This is equal redistribution of. Uh, so some people are proposing, but the question is not only technical, it's mostly political. There should be a political infrastructure for this kind of decisions. Till now, we don't have this political infrastructure. We don't have these structures that will ultimately 
take such decisions and support them and defend them as well. Uh, you're, I feel yeah, that you. Yeah, shall I? Well, uh, it's just a question I'm not of foreign enough interference. Foreign interference. Huh? Foreign interference. Ah, foreign interference. Yeah, I mean, for once, for once, these protests are no are not about geopolitics. In 2005, the Lebanese protested against another system, which is the Syrians, etc., uh, etc. Et for once, the, the demands are articulated around domestic concerns. And of course, different countries outside, they should respect this. But not only this, they should stop supporting this ruling elite. All EU projects, all different kind of developmental projects, money being poured into Lebanon civil society, I don't know what, they go in order to support these people. So your role, as Hisham was saying, in a way is to put pressure on this global capital that reinforce this political class, whether in Egypt, in Tunisia, or even <coughs> in Lebanon. Thank you so much. So if I may just say one word on the refugees, because that's my area of, re of, of research. There, there are two things, that, three things, actually, that, that influence this discourse. One is that the ownership of the narrative by the state, as the panelists have said, before the protests, vilifying the refugees for stealing jobs, this manifested itself in refugees being um, sort of sidelines. Two, the historical precedence of refugees being Claiming, uh, claimed to be part of the civil war is bringing itself into, into the discourse. And, um, and three, there is a lot of stigma of being a refugee in Lebanon in, in a way that if you, are, if you are a migrant here and you go, and Brexit, uh, go to a Brexit protest, nobody will kick you out. But here, there, there is that fear to a certain extent of, uh, of being threatened for your own safety. Can we, so we took one from the middle. Let's do this side and then we do the other side. Can I just touch on the point where you were talking about the debt? Right. So, yeah, take the mic, please. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just to touch a point about the, the solutions you were talking about, the debt. While I agree that there's a lot that can be done, I think in Lebanon we need to be careful because <coughs> our system is based almost on a Ponzi scheme, meaning you need new money to pay for the government deficit, right? So when you start applying capital controls and a haircut, which is the ultimate solution, you, you, break, completely, you break completely the cycle. So unless we start working on, on cutting corruption to reduce the, the, the government deficit, this is, a, this is a, a, just a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a, it's a downward spiral. So uh, I do agree that's one of the solutions, but I think there's a lot of steps that we need to take before, before we get to, to solving this, uh, this debt problem. And the question that I wanted to ask is more, and I'm sorry if you touched upon this before I got here, but the question that I really wanted to know, so you touched a bit on some of the, the social unrest that happened in 18 and 19. And I think it's very important to talk about the Youth Think movement that happened in 15, which also was, uh, uh, was kind of... Uh, uh, in the spirit. Which was, which was a fire, uh, uh, I think, which was uh, uh, the same fire that started this revolution. And at the time, what the government has pushed, which they try to do this time, right, is push the protester to organize and come up with a unified list of demands, which basically created problems between the, the, the protesters. And then this, that was one of the ways where, where they killed it. So the question that I have for you is how do we avoid this this time? I know. The, the, the demands from the people are, are pretty clear, but once they have to become tangible, will the government uh, be able to, uh, uh, Thank to you. push them? Yeah. Two more questions from this side, and then we'll get, come to this side of the room. Yeah. You better raise your hand now if you're on this side. 
Hey, thank you very much for, uh, for, for, for making the time to, to share information. Just a quick one. While, while I do agree the root causes are domestic for the revolution, and that's the short-term focus, it will have big geopolitical impacts on the region. So can you just share a bit the thoughts about what might happen over the longer term? Thank you. Anyone from this side? No? There's a oh, gentleman here. He's been trying to... Okay. In my ignorance, uh, observing the whatever press that we can get in, Eng in English, I'm uh, just gathering that the people who are in the uprising would like to do away with all the confessional government. Now, is that possible, or would the government simply create maybe a 16th or 17th or 18th confessional that's somehow secular and non-ethnic? Uh, no, we're, go we're going to answer now. We took three questions. Maybe we Do you want to give start? it a start? Okay, I'll start very briefly. I just want to say that these protests are not operating in a vacuum. Yes, you think, etc. But it goes beyond that. The Lebanese have been struggling in their everyday life. It's not yet we had, you know, anti-politics versus, uh, you know, alter politics. Someone who's selling his land in the peripheries to send his uh, son or daughter to school, private college, this is imagining a different reality. Even those who used to go to a Zaim political leader, ask for a favor, for a wasta, for a job, they were imagining a different realities. So yes, the Lebanese have been struggling since you know day one, since the 90s, since the war, and we should account this everyday struggle. The difference now is that we moved you know, from what James Scott calls the hidden transcripts to the public transcripts. So it's not that this is, you know, uh, uh, something operating in a vacuum, all of a sudden they became aware of their problems. They were very aware about their problems. The repertoire of contention, they're, they're completely different now. And we still risk going back to the same old ways of imagining a different uh, 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 future that was at some point articulated around clientelist network and patronage. Now, this is one of the solutions. Of course, we have tangible solutions. But now, the main achievement so far of this uprisings, and we should preserve it, is that the Lebanese are imagining their life outside the uh, realm of the Zaama, and they're claiming back the state, public state, the idea of the state, but not only claiming it back, telling everyone that the Zaim was capturing the state as not providing the state. And this is very, very crucial. We have embryonic movement structures, and the challenge now is to drive you know, these demands to state institutions, to union, to the universities. Unfortunately, universities in Lebanon, they produce precarity. They produce precarity. 70%, it's a global you know, uh, uh, phenomenon, but worth in Lebanon, 70% of the faculties in private universities, those who are defending you know, protests, are part-timers. These are producers of precarity. So we should take these challenges from the street to our universities, to our unions, to our schools, to our private schools, but we've been imagining <coughs> different, you know, future for long. This is a period where it become collective outside the realm of the Zama system. Very good point. Um, yeah, I mean, about uh, you think, uh, I don't know that that, um, that, that the 
the list of demands is what causes that movement to collapse. I, I think anyway we can question this whole idea of failure and what does it mean for something to fail. But, but uh, the garbage protests were a very different um, kind of beast to what we're seeing now, I think. And a big part of the problem was, with that was that there was a um, desire to uh, organize these protests in a particular way from these kind of middle class civil society organizations like you stink, like we want accountabil accountability, whatever. And then you had the kind of the rest of the protesters who were trying to diversify the, the list of demands, right? To me, that's really this, the, the problem with that particular moment is that there was a desire to isolate garbage from all the other issues that were sort of unfolding in the country. Um, and there was also a desire to kind of impose a certain etiquette of protesting and a certain, and, and you end up with this kind of class divide. Um, and so I think that that's kind of very different from what we're seeing right now. Um, so I don't think it was the articulation of a list of demands, but it was who, d who, who decided that they were the ones to articulate these demands, what kind of demands did they make? And yeah, so I think it's, um, that I'd say it's more, more something along those lines. Let me talk about, uh, quickly, this is an important point about cutting expenditures and uh, budgets. You know, we have to shrink the budget. We have to make it more uh, uh, efficient. Now, there are three major, three very big expenditures in Lebanon. There's electricity or, or sources of header, uh, meaning uh, waste. So the first is the electricity, which is not even working. So people still have to have two bills. They have to pay the more the... Uh, ma mafiosos who actually run the motor, the, uh, the power uh, pow private power plants. Second is, you know, always uh, uh, raised as public employees, expenditures. And the third is the debt. So it's very odd that uh, international lenders and local elites, they keep focusing on the electricity. We have to cut waste and electricity, which is a basic need. And we have to cut public employee um, salaries, which actually serve hundreds of thousands of people, but they don't talk about the debt. So my point is you have to choose which, again, which social class has to bear part of the responsibility. Now, in the case of Lebanon, you're right in the sense that a big chunk of the debt is local. So it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme in the sense that people put their money in the bank, and then the bank puts the money to, towards the debt, and then the banks start extracting profit from the interest that they earn from lending the government. And the problem is that much of this money then is recycled into paying the debt rather than investing in infrastructure. So to say that we want to reduce investment is a big mistake. We want to actually prioritize investment. What are we going to pr invest in? The international lenders are mostly concerned with servicing their debt and reducing expenditure, which is austerity as we know it. So I think a lot of people are tired of that argument that we need to just reduce uh, expenditure. We want to be... Uh, cho uh, choosy in what we spend on. So, yes, there are repercussions if we decide to stop this cycle. This is why we could potentially increase the cost um, on the banks by reducing the interest rates. And I said this is precisely what Hariri did as a smokescreen for other things that he was doing, which is cutting expenditure in general. So there are incredible profits being made. I think they can afford that squeeze. They just don't feel they have to at the moment. Now, when you do that, you have to be careful because if there's a run on the dollars or there's a run on the currency, you might have a currency collapse. And that means people who have their savings in Lebanese liras are going to be poorer. If you get paid in Lebanese liras, you're going to be poorer. 
Um, the banks already closed for 12 days because they were worried. They already today imposed informal capital controls. Do you know what that means, actually? Rather than have a formal policy that applies to everybody, each bank individually can decide to convince somebody not to withdraw their money and not somebody else. We still don't know if a lot of the money of this rich ruling class has left the country or not. So we need transparency, but in terms of the accounts, I can give you some stats about the debt, but we still don't know everything. We don't know how much, who owes what. So another demand would be to call for a public uh, trans, um, a public pu a publication of by the central bank of who owes what precisely. We st there's a lot of debate about that. So, 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 no, but the deposit of the bank itself. So we also have 80 uh, billion in local currency and 50 in, in foreign. I don't know of many countries that actually lend, uh, borrow money in foreign currency because you can't control the price of that currency. This was a transformation in Lebanon by the late 90s. Again, looking for sources of debt rather than actually improving the economy, the local economy. So those are some of the problems. The last point about the confessional. Oh, please, yes. Um, actually, first of all, there are people who already have thought of creating an 18th confession that's secular. That's one of the things proposed by some of the uh, NGOs. Um, there are also um, ideas of <coughs> potentially, so, so th let me just tell you how some of the people participating think of the transitional period. So those people who are not maybe as concerned about the economy are concerned about uh, political representation and, and ending sectarianism. They would like mostly to see a transitional government that would then prepare the grounds with exceptional powers for an election that would create a new uh, parliament that would then elect a new president. And it's this opening in the elections that would allow these new forces that are now present within the movements to run for, I spoke to a very prominent one, extremely prominent, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't say it should be uh, non-sectarian the law. So some of them are mostly concerned about potentially uh, participating in power to pressure very traditional ways of pressuring. There are others who want a non-sectarian law, but I have not felt that this is, yes, people are opposed to sectarianism, and there is a real uh, creation of a space where there is, I think, a new generation that is liberated from sectarian identity, but it's still a long way from translating into a radical call for complete ending of the sectarian system. Um, thank you for uh, both the talks at the beginning and the Q&A, super, super enlightening. Quick question, you touched very br briefly, Hisham, on the role of the diaspora, specifically on uh, what I would call lobbying, for lack of better term. Can you expand a little bit more on that? What is today the most effective way the diaspora can channel their energy away from just becoming an echo chamber? Thank you. Um, as an observer, I've always been struck how such an intelligent and innovative people are so failed by an embarrassing government. Um, I, my question is couched in the, in the point here about Lebanon being a, in the putty, a putty in the hands of regional powers. How do you see the presence of various militia 
and large party infrastructures in maintaining that the Lebanese state is hollowed out and incapable of dealing with people's daily problems? <coughs> Thanks. Sorry, okay. am I the wrong person? I'll, I'll just jump That's in fine. anyway. <laughs> There's no such thing as queues in Lebanon. So, um, Thanks for a really interesting presentation. I'd like to pick up on that issue on creation of a space for critical thinking. And I think surely there needs to be more room for a critical space against the political elite. I hear so much vague uh, euthanisms used in Lebanon, but not enough critical. And what we're hearing, the chance from the people is critically at the elite, including Hezbollah, which have now become part of the political elite establishment. So the question, where is the space? If there's going to be change, there needs to be new political parties that come through, whether they call themselves non-sectarian, but there's never been space for critical Sunni, Shia, Druze to oppose Jumblat, to oppose, oppose Aoun, to oppose Nasrallah, and that's starting to emerge. So I wonder, what do you think of that? How do we encourage as part of the Lebanese diaspora, where's the critical voice that's challenging their elite <coughs> politicians? So there's, there are three questions. Role of diaspora and how the diaspora can uh, basically do advocacy and lobbying, channeling energy. Two is on the international powers and how they're playing around with, uh, with uh, Lebanon. And three about the creating critical space. Who wants to? Please. Um, I mean, I'd say uh, to begin with that it's not true that there haven't been spaces where these cross-sectarian, cross-class conversations have been happening. Um, they're just not, I mean, they're just not reported on or they're not studied and so they, they just don't exist within um, sort of easy, sort of within sort of easy grasp of those of us that are outside. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think, like I said, that there, um, there are attempts now to have political conversations and to plan for the emergence of new collectives or new parties and sort of different, um, different manifestations of these things. So people are having these conversations on the ground. So I know that NGO workers, for example, are working on creating a union uh, for themselves um, in, in Lebanon. And there are sort of various attempts to sort of work on establishing spaces that can outlive the uprising or outlive the streets, right? Um, uh, and I, yeah, in terms of the diaspora, I don't know what our role really is in, in those conversations. Um, I think that for me to kind of go back to this idea of solidarity, I think what we can really do here is highlight the intersections between the various um, uprisings that are happening all over the globe. Because we, if we live in London, then we can also go to the protests that Chileans are organizing, and we can go to the protests that Kashmiris are organizing, and we can be part of this really kind of vibrant uh, transnational moment of thinking about the interconnections of these various struggles, because that helps us emphasize the role of neoliberalism and of neoliberal development in the kind of crises that we're seeing in these various contexts. And so I think those are things that we, we can do really and, and also to go back to this idea of putting pressure on a, a, you know, a government, be it the US or the UK or wherever we live, that is kind of invested in these ruling classes and in their perpetuation. Um, 
to the point uh, about uh, how such an intelligent people could be ruled by such a failed government, I had the same feeling when I came to Britain. But to get back uh, to the question of, um, I think, what can we do? Again, this is, we, it's, it's very instructive from these demonstrations that people are still not comfortable speaking on behalf of this movement. They can analyze it, they can s voice what they think should happen, and I hope we can continue to do that individually. Uh, there's, uh, I would say first, rev revolts are about three, speaking truth to power and also about positionality. So again, there are the, there's the question of solidarity with other. We have the, the uh, great opportunity to be in a place where we have people uh, supporting the movement in Chile and other countries. What can we learn from them? What can they learn from us? Do we have similar demands that we could maybe formulate together? This way we can have a stronger voice in terms of what these governments are doing. Um, the second point, I think, would be to protect the movement in Lebanon from foreign interference. I mean, if we really are worried about how this could easily turn into a geopolitical issue, uh, there are governments... I mean, if I were in Russia, for example, my discourse would be very different from if I were here. I know there are governments ready to pounce on this moment to either potentially undermine Lebanon's ability to defend itself against Israel. Um, there are also all sorts of questions that people are very aware about in Lebanon. They don't want to you know, invoke constantly, which is in this case the question of resistance against uh, Israel. So how do we think of what is the discourse in this country about Lebanon and how we can we ensure that we bring their voices as, as credibly as possible to hear. Uh, there's also solidarity directly, whether we can support them. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to talk about it, uh, you know, very like um, specifically, but there are different forms. So there's the direct relationship with those over there and listening to them and what they, you know, we may help them. Then there's our relationship to the wider community and, and talking about what's happening. And then there's the third level of how we deal with the, you know, governments or institutions that are here uh, that can actually alleviate from the pressure. If we can't now pressure the assertion of banks, we can talk about international lending, we can talk about debt forgiveness, we can talk about refinancing, we can, you know. So these are the, some of the ways we can potentially think about together uh, of, uh, of, of support. Wh where do we protest, for example? Location. You know, how can we think of different ways of protesting? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's my, my take on this. Yeah, maybe very quickly, uh, on the comment of the uh, intelligent people, the whole, the whole Lebanese ideology is based on the fact that the Lebanese is genius, individual, he's intelligent, and therefore he doesn't need his government. This is the architecture of the Lebanese economic system, and we're paying, you know, dear. We're paying a lot because the government basically withdrew from regulations, economy, etc., etc., and all these, you know, very, very, very few accumulated lot of resources to, to the detriment of other fellow Lebanese. On the question of hollowing out the state, militias, yes, I agree, but I wouldn't put only the blame on the militias or Hezbollah or different groups or thugs or strongmen. There is a whole process that hollowed out state institution in post-war Lebanon. Those who are responsible are not, not only, you know, militiamen, but also UNDP, for instance, UNDP in post-war Lebanon, the United Nations, they put a whole structure and infrastructure parallel to the ministries, official ministries. You have an expert coming, 
you know, to solve the problem. He's earning $10,000 a month. The public employee, the same office, is paying only $1,000 a month. This is how you hollow state institutions. There is a whole demonization of the public and the state. So we should also be, you know, uh, I, would, I would say, you know, fair and account and, and look at all these dimensions that have hollowed out state institutions because they went hand in hand. It was a negotiated process. You take the arms, I take the economy. You structure the resistance the way you want, I take the economy and I re reconstruct, you know, the country the way I want. So uh, 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 looking at, you know, one is not, uh, one does not exclude the other. So yes, I agree, as long as we involve everyone. Um, Yes, that diaspora, there is a question of trust, especially people living in the Gulf. These people, they used to send a lot of money for their families two, three months ago when they stopped, when they were talking about uh, the, the, the devaluation of the currency, they withdrew their money from Lebanese banks. Uh, and trust is one way of bringing this money again. And I believe this is when, you know, for once the nationalist belonging can play a role and this emotional you know, uh, politics can play a role by these people, you know, investing or sending back money to their uh, country, to Lebanon. Okay, so we'll take one more round of questions. Uh, let's start by the lady over there. Thank you. Um, it was a very insightful panel. Thanks for that. Um, we spoke a lot about the situation, how we how we reached that point, and what's happening at the moment. Um, what I'd like to know is very simple, and I know you don't read the future, but what is likely to happen? Um, so in terms of we have a very clear constitutional mechanism in place. I know that people have big demands, but realistically speaking, what are the, n the next um, political milestones or events that could happen in the upcoming weeks? Can you pass it to the gentleman behind you, actually? Thank you, and thank you also for a great discussion. I've got a very quick two-part question that links on uh, the answers you just gave. The first is, how do you see the uprisings of Lebanon in the context of those happening in Iraq, Ethiopia, across South America? And the second part of the question is, how, how do you see the role of Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, stepping up? Is it feasible for them to um, get involved and see Lebanon as a proxy? Iran and Saudi Arabia seeing sure. as, as proxy. Yeah. Okay. Can we take? No, you took. You took Let's take a question from here. Start the battery. Okay. So, just say it as, as loud as possible. Um, I'm Lebanese, and out of selfishness, um, what's happening right now is igniting this joy of unity and extremely nationalistic feeling. And for me, this, is, this movement is completely nationalistic. Um, from what you've seen on the ground, what are the things that we shouldn't do? What are the things or topics that actually divide us, divide them who are doing God's work on the ground right now? Let's take one more question, actually, because it's the final round. Which one? Okay, let's, let's, take that. Let's, let's take a question from the back. Yeah, there's no microphone. Uh, my question is, uh, you were talking about a new generation that was liberated. So how, how much do you see this movement as a generational uprising by a less socially conservative <coughs> youth? Thank you. One you had a question. No, no. Oh, yeah. Just one, one last question from the back. Yeah, yourself, yeah. Um, I'm Lebanese as well, although I don't sound it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a sense 
I'm getting from a lot of my family and friends over there of this kind of um, people seem to be drunk on their own optimism. I don't mean to sound cynical. How can how can complacency be avoided and the uh, downfalls thereof? Excellent. All right. Over to you guys. Okay. So. Institutional mechanisms, for once, for me, and here I'm talking about a researcher, but also citizen, it doesn't really count because politics was never located, uh, power was never located in uh, uh, public institutions. So now talking about transition for me is very misleading. Uh, how do we, you know, move to a transitional government? The thing is, I believe this is what we should not do, and here I'm talking as as a, as a citizen. We should not focus on. Uh, uh, political participation and thinking about a new electoral law because this is where we will not only lose in front of this political ruling uh, class but also we will compete against each other. So we should not focus on mechanisms even though democratically are and you know institutional they would you know uh, hollow out this movement. Uh, we should rather unify the de uh, not the demands everyone has his own and her own demands we should unify the discourse and keep it as a social protest. This is a social protest against, you know, inequalities, against capital accumulation, and for social justice. And from there, you know, we can think about different possibilities, imaginaries, but we should, I believe, to save this movement, keep it where it started, which is the social question. On uh, your question of euphoria, yes, and that's why, personally, I'm very anxious, and I'm afraid this could be the last dance for the Lebanese, those who are dancing very happily on the streets, because deep down they know that you know, the, 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 the axe shit the fan, therefore you know, they're dancing because, yes, there is hope, but also there is a lot of anxiety. And I'm afraid, I don't want to be very pessimistic, but if we lose this movement, uh, we're gonna you know, um, end up saying you know, the famous quote of you know, the leopard, everything has changed for everything to stay the same to stay the same. So I need to follow up on that with Gramsci's pessimism of the intellect, optimism <laughs> of the will. I think that is the way forward. Realism without defeatism. That's another, uh, for me, slogan I always believe in when it comes to change. So be realistic, uh, understand uh, the what's at stake, what kind of force you're facing, um, and then don't be defeatist. Try to find ways to actually keep fighting. And another, again, sorry, I'm, I'm using all these as, you know, cliches, but I don't think they are. Mahdi Amils, you are not defeated as long as you resist. Uh, so uh, to build on that, um, it's not, I know, I know, but, you know, it's, it may sound. But in his case, it wasn't. But I, I want to say that uh, if I were to uh, assess the stage, what stage are we at? And it's very difficult, right? Um, I think we are at a stage where the the ruling class is still power enough to hold on to power. We still don't have an alternative. And I don't mean the alternative they want us to, to think about. That there isn't now anyone who is capable of potentially taking over power. When you have that situation, you have several scenarios. The first scenario is that the pressure by the people is so strong and that the confusion within those ruling is still so prevalent that they are forced to adopt some of these basic demands. And this is what we sometimes call political science revolution from above, to simplify it, is that the people who are still in power recognize they can't anymore sustain it. So that this is the stage we're at. We are at a stage that we either continue to pressure for them to adopt or not. So this is where I think we are. Now, 
if we start getting into this power game and power sharing, or if we start getting into the questions of who's going to rule next and who's the technocrat, many of those ruling today are technocrats. Unless there is an organized alternative to the power that be, we are likely to end in the very similar scenarios of countries that are around us, in the sense that you might have some mechanism to incorporate part of this movement into the, the, the you know, whoever is, is now in power, and we end up with some kind of deflated uprising. Now, the other challenge is that because of sectarianism and the geopolitics, a lot of the people who were the foundational uh, mass of this movement have withdrawn from it at this stage. They may come back, and if we have an economic crisis, I think they will come back. But how do we incorporate them? How do we engage with them much more critically? The the, what is mostly visible today in the uprising are the voices of those who are not coming from these backgrounds. Uh, people like us who either you know, can speak to the international uh, discourse or people who within Lebanon are equipped to actually organize on the, st on, on the ground, to use social media. So the biggest challenge is how do we uh, you know, expand this critical space to these communities. Um, so this is another point. The, the fact that also Beirut versus the, the periphery, this is very important. If this is gonna end up being yet another um, sit-in in Beirut, I think this will be a big damage. So how do we connect with the other parts of the country? We do have public space, but it's, I mean, if you go to Solidaire, the, the majority of it is not actually taken over yet. The majority is still very well protected. Uh, it's still one street at this point and a square. So my hope is that the scenario is that the, this movement uh, forces for now concessions by uh, the government, whatever government it is, until we have the uh, networks that can potentially imagine a different future, they can push for an alternative. And focusing on the social, and here I mean national social. It doesn't mean, you know, just, it's a question of governance, but not the good governance stuff. So it's a question of rights. We want, I think, should focus on the economic dimension as a protection. So I, just to clarify, I didn't mean that there were a lot of new generation who were more liberated than the older were not. There are older generations are also non-sectarian. I meant there is a core contingent that is so solid and active on the street that believe in this in, you know, very deeply, but they're still not yet the majority in my opinion. So not to fool ourselves. So how do we expand that? How do we create it so that it's, and, and here unions and associations that are being created are very important because they're at that level, they're neither political parties. Everybody, every country has political parties. This anti-ideological aspect is a bit, you know, but, but then but regardless of what we call it, we need, you know, some form of mechanisms to sustain this movement before we jump to the point of taking over power. Great. So, Sophie, if you can tell us a little bit about how you see this in, in light of uh, Iraq and South America, and uh, how can we avoid complacency in the street? Uh, um, uh, sure. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, very, to put it very simply, um, so that there's this um, image that's making the rounds, I think, from Chile of a kind of it's like this quote about refusing the norm or the normal um, and, and kind of fighting this idea that this is 
this kind of neoliberal reality in the case of Chile is is what is normal and is what you have to cope with. I think that this is, you know, what is sort of shared in all of these contexts, a refusal of what of a, of a kind of a crisis that has been experienced as or been forced on people to experience as normal. Um, so it's a, I think of it an up, uprisings against the normalization of certain ways of living and suffering. Um, I wanted to say something about nationalism. Um, uh, so I, I'm just really, this is the, the thing that I'm afraid of. I'm, I'm afraid of the, the, this idea that the thing that can trump sectarianism is nationalism. Because nationalism is, is always exclusionary. And actually what we've seen over the last maybe 10 years uh, in Lebanon is a, a growth of a kind of chauvinistic nationalism um, that has um, alienated and resulted in the abuse of, for example, refugee communities. So I, I mean, I don't have an answer to how, how does one deal with that um, on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I don't have, I don't, you know, I just, I just worry, I, I worry about that, the language of nationalistic pride. Um, it's just something that, that concerns me. Um, Although I understand the sentiment, I just think that I think maybe we need to keep in mind that the kind of violence that nationalism is also productive of, because it is often po posited as the positive alternative to sectarianism in Lebanon. And I actually think it does exist alongside sectarianism. I don't think they're necessarily at odds with each other. Um, I mean, well, but can I quickly? I, I agree, but I also am very much about the historical specificity of nationalism. I'm fully opposed to this idea that nationalism sui generis is bad. Uh, the, the history of nationalism in, in colonial countries was about progressive nationalism. It was about social nationalism. It was about regaining the ability of the people to actually uh, um, rule themselves and not actually in liberate though, it. Not no, in I think, well, this is a different historical reading. Uh, but I also agree with you that in the case of Lebanon, there is the potential of Le national chauvinism. But that's a very different question from saying whether you believe the state, the nation, the state should be responsible for looking after, um, you know, providing services for people. So I think the context is very important, in my opinion, of how we think of nationalism. Yeah, uh, can I can I just finish my point? Yeah, I mean, we can have that debate for a long time about the exclusionary politics of Gnosticism and the exclusionary politics of various other um, experiments in, nas in nationalistic uh, belonging. But yes, I agree. I'm not talking about the state or what the state should be responsible for. Um, I did just want to make two other comments about the youth thing. Um, so I, I, I agree with what Hisham was saying that um, part of how we perceive this as a generational uprising of youth has to do with what we're seeing in the media, in the diaspora. And I don't think that it is. I think maybe the closest way in which to think about it in, in sort of comparison to other contexts would be this idea of the 99% or the kind of mass mass of the population that is um, is not sort of, and the, the idea that this tiny little, in Lebanon I think it's 0.3, not 1%, that is kind of where the wealth is concentrated. And the last thing, just on this idea of being drunk on optimism, you know, and I guess similar to what um, Jamil was saying, I think a lot of people are both drunk on optimism and also anxious and, and very aware of, because they've embodied histories of failure, of, of sort of the failure of one social movement after the other. So I think that they're, they're carrying both these things in, in their bodies, right, and in the streets. And um, despite, you know, what we see in this kind of fervor, I think people are very aware of the fact that this can, you know, this can end or be taken away or, or undermined. And I just have a clarification. I don't want to see uh, to seem pessimistic. What I tried to say, no, no, very important. No, 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 no. What I tried to say, if we keep on this utopian project, 
we want a secular state, we want I don't know what, we're gonna, it's gonna be the last dance. On the contrary, we have achieved a lot, and what we achieved is now the citizen is center stage of politics, and from now on, no one can humiliate the citizen because he's gonna resist in his everyday life. If he takes his son or daughter to the hospital, or her. the hospital, huh? or her, or her daughter, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no one, no one. Yes, no one is gonna tell him no, and he's gonna resist. And this is what we achieved so far. Before, someone would die on the hospital, on the door of the hospital. Now, the Lebanese individual, and this is what I believe citizens are very aware about their power to resist these mechanisms of exploitation and we have achieved a lot in this sense that's a nice note to leave us with um b before before we end i just want to say that uh, this is part of a series and we, we will keep doing these uh, seminars as long as there is interest we're also very much open for suggestions on topics and speakers that you're interested in. So we really want to keep this debate going uh, as it was. I think it was amazing. Um, yes. So we, you can you can reach some uh, uh, you can reach some of us at LSE. Uh, you can reach people at the Middle East Center. There's a group of Lebanese that are organizing themselves. And I think the email is LebaneseInLondon uh, at gmail.com. Um, but there there are many ways to reach us. So please do reach out. But um, I, I, I don't know if you agree with me that this was a, a really, really interesting uh, discussion. And I, I, for one, benefited a lot from all the three panelists. And if you'll join me in just thanking them. Thank you.